Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and I'm really excited because we have a special episode for you this week, Um, really two different sections, two different parts to today's episode. Uh, In this episode, I talked to Pastor Corey Nelson. Now, Corey's story is pretty awesome. He was appointed as a pastor of a United Methodist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, in a neighborhood that the governor actually declared as the most dangerous in all of Kentucky. Pastor Corey has called this church home for five years now, but about a year ago, he transformed the church into a church for kids. That's right, a church for kids. Now, the first half of the interview focuses on the incredible story of the events that led to this transformation at his church. Uh, In the second half of the interview, Corey shares about his harrowing journey that really brought him into ministry. Uh, We talk about this journey that he went through, which included him serving in the Marines, a debilitating injury that he had, and years of being on pain medications and undergoing surgery after surgery. So it's a fantastic interview. Now, we also have a special resource for all of our listeners. Simply text church leaders to 44222 and receive a free ebook on the 11 healthy habits of church growth. This is an insightful book that we want to bless you in your ministry with. So text church leaders. And that's all one word, no spaces, church leaders to 44222 to receive this free ebook. And now I invite you to join me in my conversation with Corey Nelson. Corey, it is such a pleasure to have you with us on Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome. It's great to be with you. So, Corey, pretty much straight out of seminary, you took over a church in what the governor of Kentucky calls the most dangerous neighborhood in the entire state. Let's start by talking about what that was like walking into that neighborhood for the very first time. Uh, it was utterly terrifying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when when they first brought that, you know, I got to see the church, um, I don't know, about two months before I actually became the pastor. And there's a stop sign out there on the corner right in front of the church. And somebody had taken vinyl stencils, vinyl letters, and went around the stop sign. Now, stop sign, of course, says stop. Well, somebody had put the letters around it. I wouldn't stop here if I was you. Now, the grammar was horrible, but the message was pretty clear. And, you know, as I'm sitting there thinking, wow, what what did I agree to? Um, And then a couple months later, one of my my, the district superintendent that had appointed me down in Breck County, he, he was really familiar with this neighborhood. And he came up to check it out. It was kind of looking out for me. And he calls me one day and he goes, Corey, he goes, you're going to have your hands full up there. And I'm so, you know, he's, if there was anybody that probably should have been a former Marine that wasn't, it was this guy, um, <laughs> very gruff, tough, but wonderful man. And I sat there with that for a second. He goes, but you're the man for the job. Mm-hmm. And so when I got here, you know, and to look at, look at me, it looks like, well, that was an easy thing for him. It, it was pretty scary. You know, I lived in Los Angeles while I was in the Marines, um, you know, knew what gangs look like and, and knew, you know, I was out there during the Rodney King riots. Um, and, and so I had seen, you know, that side of things, but now that I'm having to live in it, 
and I'm having to figure out how to be a pastor in it. All you right. know, we, we joke about the things they didn't teach us in seminary. Well, this was a crash course in the things they didn't teach us in seminary. Yeah. And so it, it started with kind of getting over your own fear and listening to God and just taking a step. And that was a big thing was taking that step outside the building and getting out in the street and meeting people. That's awesome. Now, so whenever you took the church, because your church and anyone who's listening, this is a fascinating story, but, but your church as it is today is incredibly unique. Like, like yes. I don't know of another church in the country like your church right now. So those, those who are listening, hang in because, because <laughs> you're, it's very fascinating. So, but when you took this church, it was a regular United Methodist church, correct? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So it was a regular United Methodist church in a very, very rough neighborhood, right? Right. Okay. So you come into the church, you start doing what, what we as pastors tend to do when we come into a, a new church, you get to know the people, try to get to know the community and, you know, try to do your best at serving them. So, so you start, you know, just being a regular pastor and, and you do that for how long before God really gets a hold of your heart and begins to, to push you in a different direction? It was almost, I would say instantaneous. Uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, in Iowa, in a lot of ways is very similar to this neighborhood. Okay. Um, didn't have the best of reputations. Um, in some ways, in that neighborhood back in Iowa, I was, you know, my parents weren't wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but in that neighborhood, I was considered the rich kid. And I think it was because I had both parents at home. Wow. Um, there was a lot of similarities to me. I would see people that reminded me of people at home. And I could understand why to the world outside they might seem scary. But you know, going back to the stories of back home, you know, these were just normal people that were trying to get by. Um, and so in those early days of walking the streets, um, and I, I was at the church all the time, but never in the church. Um, you know, I would just stop, start talking to people. And so people started to take notice pretty quick. And in my first week, there was a kid and I say kid, he was probably about 19 or 20 was walking towards me and just looked angry. I mean, just looked like he was mad at the world and was just glaring at me. And I thought, all right, well, here's a conversation. And so I stopped him and I say, hey, man, how's it going? And he goes, I know who you are. And I said, yeah, well, who am I? And he goes, well, you're that pastor. And I said, well, I'm sure there's lots of pastors around here. Are you sure you got the right one? And he goes, you're that pastor down the street. And I said, well, yeah, that, that is me. And he goes, I don't like pastors. And I sat there for a second. I said, well, I, I don't really like them either. And his guard just completely dropped. Nice. And the conversation began to happen. And in that, you really began to see uh, maybe the layer of hurt that some people have. You know, if somebody right. leads with that, I don't like pastors. Yeah. Something's happened to yeah, them. Yeah. And so to be able to knock that down, well, that kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities around here. You know, how do we begin reaching people that may not like the church, don't want anything to do with the church, maybe never been to church? And so that opened my eyes to maybe what God was doing here. Um, in those early years here, I've been here just over five years, and we really focused on the gangbangers, the prostitutes, the convicts, the drug dealers. We really felt a push towards the the people that it seems the church, big C church claims to want, but I don't really see a lot of action towards that necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to create a safe space for them. 
but from those early days, we were flooded with kids. Cause once I got, I'm, I'm kind of like a big cartoon character in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, and I just relate to kids. I never wanted to do children's ministry. Uh, that, that was not on my radar, but I relate well to kids. And so there's nothing in this community for the kids. They had shut down the boys and girls club. They had bulldozed in the pool, the park, the three blocks away, the kids were scared of at that time. And so they had nowhere to go. And so I was like, well, we have a projector. We can at least make some popcorn, you know, come back Friday and, you know, we'll see what happens. Well, we had about 20 kids, 20, 30 kids that first Friday and then word spread. So as we're focusing on really going at, you know, Mark 2, 13 through 17 had a profound impact on me in seminary, you know, doing exegesis on that with Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors Mm -hmm. and the idea that that was not garden variety sinners. Um, and so we, I would really focus on trying to go after that crowd. But at the same time, if there were cars in the parking lot, kids were flooding this building. Um, they were here anytime the church was open. And so we started on a, looking back. It feels like maybe on a cursory level, especially as compared to now, we were doing some children and youth ministry, but it wasn't our focus. We were still entirely focused on you know, the, the prostitutes and the gangbangers and the drug dealers and and that. And so we did launch a church here called Heathen Church because I was like, you know what, if we're going to go after them, let, let's just say who we are up front. And it really became a point of pride for the people that were coming here. It didn't go over well with the folks I inherited originally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. Imagine. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I haven't figured that out yet. That's uh, funny. But as we went along, you know, we, we started to celebrate recovery here right? and the kids would flood it. We had an AA program here. The kids would flood it, not because they wanted AA or celebrate recovery. They just wanted to be in the building. Wow. And so, so, so you're saying like, so these ministries, so heathen church, you know, as you said, it was directed toward, um, gangbangers, prostitutes, you know, ex-convicts, all, all those type of things. And so you're doing ministry, like you said, AA, celebrate recovery, those types of things to try to reach those people. And yet the kids just keep showing up every time, every time your doors are open, the kids are there, right? Right. Right. That's crazy. They eventually made it so AA couldn't meet here or refused to meet here because the kids were just taking over the meeting. They oh. would come down and plop down around the table with them. And That's <laughs> so, hilarious. So they finally said, uh, we're going to have to move. And so in that, I had the idea probably about six months in to ask the question of some friends that were children's pastors, I said, you know, just out of curiosity, hypothetically, what would happen if you closed the church and opened it up as a church just for children and youth? And, you know, children's pastors tend to be very excitable people and <laughs> their eyes would get great big. And I thought, all right, here comes some revelation. And they would look at me and Corey, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know either. And so I kind of let it go. But as we went along and we kept getting more and more and more kids, and it's funny, the image I have in my head is, you know, I would pray to God for direction. Now, again, remember, I'm a Marine, so that means I'm very obedient. And that's something I try to be in my faith is obedient to God, you know, no matter what he's telling me. And so I'd be praying, you know, give us direction. What What is it you want here? Just, just show me. But it felt like when I was praying, I was shaking kids off. You know, it's like, God, show me what you want me to do. Well, wait a second. I got to shake this kid off of my leg. Now, now, what is it you want? And finally, the realization hit me. We really needed to turn around and focus on these kids. Um, 
And so I went to our leadership. I wrote out this big proposal I love to write. And as a pastor, especially when you're dealing with leadership, if you can write a lot, it tends to wear them down. And so I wrote this. <laughs> yeah, huge, take that note, everyone who's listening. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was a nugget there. Don't, yes. don't miss that. So I wrote out this huge proposal and went straight to our bishop and said, I, I think we need to try this. And to our leadership's credit, and I always joke, I don't know if they were giving me enough rope to hang myself or if they really, really believed I could pull it off. They said, yeah, go ahead and try it. Um, and so we, we shut down the church. Um, and if you've seen the pictures, really transformed it um, into a place that, that is really owned by the kids. And we have seen just absolutely remarkable fruit. Um, and it's, it's been amazing. And I tell people, when we were doing heathen church, and there was a lot of fruit in heathen church as well, it always felt like we were pulling a bunch of anchors behind us. Everything was hard. You know, everything was a struggle with that. Once we made that transition to Grace Kids, it's like those anchors fell away and everything became just, I'm not going to say easy. Right. But things went so much smoother. Yeah, yeah. And it's it was, it's been incredible. That's awesome. So how long have you been um, a church solely for kids now solely for kids officially for a year wow uh, we just had our year anniversary uh, earlier this month um that's awesome now let me ask this question Corey, because i bet a lot of pastors listening in i'm sure they have a ton of questions so um but we could probably go for hours on this but let me just ask a, a couple quick questions um just out of curiosity one is what happened to the adults that were a part of your church did they kind of stay and engage and now they're serving as uh, volunteers or mentors or something, or, you know, what kind of happened there when you made that transition? So, and I, and I think this is important for other pastors to hear, especially new pastors. When, when I got here, like most churches, when you get a new pastor, you know, the, the first thing that you hear is we want life back in the church. And, you know, if there was anybody that I think could do that here, I really felt like I could. And so I, I hit that just full on as hard as I could and brought life into the church, but it wasn't necessarily the life that they wanted. Um, now that doesn't mean these were bad people. They, they, they were good people, but it wasn't, didn't look like what they wanted. And so it was kind of a, you know, especially with heathen church, it was a struggle to get them on board. Now, as time went on and they began to see some of the victories and began to see some of the good things going on, they began to engage a little bit. And one of the, the things that sticks out in my head was, you know, I told you the kids overtook everything. Well, the, the crowd that I inherited had a worship service at 930 in the morning. And I had always been of the mind 930 wasn't going to work because the neighborhood doesn't wake up till one. Um, and so you had like maybe 10 people in worship. Well, one morning, all these kids come piling in at 930. And I, I'm preaching, you know, a, a suitably deep sermon. You know, I thought it was going well. And you got all these kids compiling in. And I saw these older people begin to move so the kids could come sit next to them. And so as I looked out at the people I had inherited, there's all these kids interspersed around the church with them. And, and I stopped this profound sermon. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but, but I stopped this sermon and I said, look, I can say nothing more profound than what I'm seeing right now. Cause they had gotten to the point where they're like, we're too tired. We're too old. 
we, we can't do this. And I said, you are doing ministry right now. And That's awesome. so it helped. It was a healing moment, I think, for them. But I also think in the long run, it was maybe a point for them to say that the church was, was in good hands, that it was okay to move on. Because a lot of the folks no longer, actually all of them, no longer lived in the neighborhood anymore. They really wanted a place that they could have their style of worship. They could have their style of ministry. And I worried that they weren't being fed here because, you know, you, you've got the kids coming in. You've got the heathen church people coming in. And they, they always, I think, kind of felt a little threatened by that. And so as time went on, and, and they were an older congregation, you know, we had people um, pass on. And we eventually got down to about three people left. And, you know, we're doing all this other ministry around the three. And they eventually, I think, got to the point where they recognized it was probably time to go somewhere where they could be fed. And so sadly, we don't have any of them around anymore. I think it would have been a great legacy for this church to be able to usher in, you know, this new generation. But in the long run, I think, their their gift to this place was during those really really lean years even before i got here right. that they were they were faithful and they kept the lights on um without them doing that none of this exists that's awesome and, yeah i love that perspective because um oftentimes you know as you said pastors we come into a new place and there are people who have been there and and you know we we feel God leading us in a particular direction and sometimes it's hard because you lose people right or you know people leave and and just what you said there, Corey, the idea that, you know, their faithfulness in the years before you arrived provided the foundation that is allowing you to do the ministry that God's called you guys to do right now. And I, right. I think that's important for us to remember as pastors that, you know, God sees a much bigger picture than, than we tend to in our finite lives, you know, and, right. um, and to just to as long as we're being faithful to what God's calling us to do. Trust God with what has come before, um, what's happening presently, and what's coming after. Because you know it's we're we're but a blip on the radar when it right. comes to eternity, right? So <laughs> exactly, I, I love that man. That's that's so good. So, what types of of ministry over this last year are are you doing? Like, how has the church actually shifted? I mean, do you you know what do you do on a weekly basis? Do you have Sunday morning worship, and it's you know focused on you know, connecting and reaching the kids, introducing them to Christ? Like, what do you do over the course of a week? So the first thing we did before we officially launched, um, the summer before we launched, we started what we called our Leadership and Discipleship Academy. Now, I'll, I'll, I will probably ruffle some feathers with this, and that, that, that's kind of what I do anyhow. Um, <laughs> when I sit in church, and you know, and, and for a big part of my adult life, I've seen, you know, I, I sat in the pews. And I also know what it is on the other side of the pulpit. And I see a lot of people, and I, whenever I preach to adults, especially now where I get to go and share about Grace Kids, is I challenge them with the question, what if the church really believed the things that we proclaim? How different you know, would the world be? How different would the church be? Because we say a lot of things, but we don't live as if we believe. And as I look at these kids, now we have kids that come in the door that literally have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. I've had kids come in the door that will, if I mention Jesus, will cover their mouths because they think that I've said a swear word. Wow. And so you have these kids that, that are coming from these awful situations that 
you know, really have difficult lives and they're, they're finding hope and, and they're finding without going too far into it, unless you want to later, um, really restoring their ability to be kids and what God created them to be. Cause th- these kids are coming to us without that ability. But in that we saw an opportunity, we can teach them Bible verses all day long and we can, we can train them to recite them back to us. But if they never commit to living it, if they never understand contextually what that means for them today, then we failed here. I, I don't want a bunch of little robots that, that can re- recite John 3.16 for me. If they can, great. But tell me what it means. Tell me how you're living it. What? How does that change your life? And so that first summer, we really focused on, on discipling these kids. And as kind of a, a laboratory, we said we were going to limit it to 15 kids. That didn't work well. We ended up with like 45 because, they, again, if the doors are open, they're coming. Right. And so that became really a, a center point in what we were doing, um, this idea that we wanted to teach the kids really how to live their faith, how, how to be true disciples, how to be leaders, Um and so on Wednesday nights, we've continued that with our Leadership and Discipleship Academy. Um, we don't limit it. Whoever comes, comes. And we, we, you know, we split up as best we can age appropriately. Um, Friday nights, we throw the doors open to the entire community. We have a meal. We show a movie. We play games. And it's really just an opportunity for anyone. And anyone in the community is welcome here anytime. We do get adults that, that come to Grace Kids. But... For the kids that are intimidated or scared to come into a church, Friday nights is the time to come because, you know, everybody comes in and it's it's loud, it's crazy, and it's a lot of fun. So really, Fridays is just an opportunity to meet the community, to engage, to help kids get over the fear of, of what it means to step into a church. And then on Sundays, we have our worship um, from three to five. And that sounds like a long time for worship and we're not in worship the whole time. What we've learned is these kids are coming from chaos and I liken it to being on the interstate when you're going 70 miles an hour and you get off on an exit in a small town and you have to slow down to 25. That's really, really hard. And so when these kids are coming in, they're going hundred miles an hour. And so the first half hour here, we just let them play. We play dodgeball. We, we play basketball. We, we do whatever we can to let them burn some of that energy off. And then we go into worship and even worship. And it's kind of jarring for folks that are coming from, from more traditional settings. We don't expect the kids to slow down to, to, to zero because it's impossible for them. And so we've designed our worship to let them run at about 30, um, to still be energetic, to still be kids, but to still understand what it means to worship, to be respectful while you're in that space. And after that, and our worship proper uh, is about 30 minutes. Uh, We do communion every week. We have a 10 minute message. I've told my assistant, if we can't convey the message in 10 minutes, we're failing. And then we did something really unique, I think. We decided, again, trying to restore the image of God in these kids and what God has created a child to be, we decided to make play a part of worship. And so we've come up with games that have an elimination aspect to them. So we play a game called Last Man Standing Dodgeball. And 
what happens is when a kid gets eliminated, we freeze the game. And my assistant and I have a list of questions we've compiled from everything we've ever taught these kids. And they're numbered. And so the kid will, will, will pick a number and we'll ask them a question. And it may be from a sermon from last year. If they get to answer it, if they answer it right, they stay in the game. Well, this has caused the kids to hang on our every word. We've also had a championship belt. looks like a wrestling belt made. <laughs> so whoever wins each week gets the belt. These kids are drinking up everything. Um, and we're beginning to see the fruits of that in their performance at school and the way they behave in the neighborhood. We've seen a decrease in crime here in the neighborhood. Uh, I think it was three years ago, we had five murders within a block of this church over the course of a year. We haven't had any of that in the past couple of years. Um, our intersection where that stop sign was used to be incredibly dangerous. And now you can walk through there and, and it's completely peaceful. So we're seeing the fruits of this by reaching this generation. That's phenomenal, Corey. So good, man. I, I love the story. I love um, how God was at work in your life. And I love the story, you know, just even having you shared about you kind of pushing God back, running from God, and, and then God gets us. God knows what he's doing and how God's doing great things through your ministry, through your work. Now, I, I was just wondering, what would you share? Obviously, there are tens of thousands of pastors um, listening in right now. What encouragement do you have for your brothers and sisters who are serving week in, week out faithfully? What words of encouragement would you have for them? Ooh, I think the biggest thing that that has helped me in this is, you know, we, we get so focused on, on numbers and and what we're doing. And, and we put so much pressure on ourselves to, to be the things that we think we need to be as pastors. And I think the most freeing, empowering thing that, you know, and it sounds cliched, but when you really take it to heart, it, it, it puts everything we do in perspective. God wants these people worse than we could ever imagine. You know, we want to reach people for the kingdom. We want to reach these kids. We want to reach the drug addicts and the prostitutes. We want to reach the people in our pews. But when we recognize that God loves them and wants them more than we ever could and that God really is in control of this, that is so freeing. And it has been a big help to me. And, you know, in a place like this where it really is, I won't say trench warfare, but trench ministry, it, it, it has been life giving to realize that. And if God is with us in reaching these people, God is going to look after us um, and see us through the storms. And there is a lot of storms in us. Um, whether you're in South Louisville or in the nicest church out, you know, in a more affluent part of the city. But if we can keep in perspective, God is God and let him be God and trust in the love that he has for us, things become much simpler. Amen. So, Corey, now that you've told us about your church in Kentucky and how you transitioned it to be a church for children, will you share with us about the personal journey that brought you into the ministry? So I joined the Marine Corps coming out of high school, um, really kind of recognized that I probably wasn't uh, ready for college. But while I was in, I grew up in the church um, and had felt called to the ministry from the time that I was young. And that scared me. Mm -hmm. And so once I was in the Marine Corps and, you know, doing things Marines do, um, I felt myself really kind of running away in a sense from my faith and believe it or not, there, there was a lot of really good discipleship going on in the Marine Corps. Um, and I had one gunnery sergeant in particular that 
you know, and I wasn't getting any sort of trouble or anything. I was just having fun like everybody else. But he would sit down and talk to me, and he had a Bible study that he kept trying to get me to come to, and we would sit together on the side and talk about Scripture. And I think he was surprised that I knew as much as I did. And uh, he kept trying to get me to come, and I was like, well, Gunny, I already know all these things. Mm. And he said, well, I, I agree, you know it, but you're not living it. Uh. And that really cut me. Um, I'll say not to the point where I started going to his Bible study, <laughs> but... It, it it left kind of a a, a a marker in my life to kind of look back as uh, as I really began considering what God was calling me to. Um, it to this day continues to be a very important point in my life. Um, and so I, I played football on a traveling team in the Marines. Um, and as I was getting ready to get out, some schools had started calling to see if I wanted to come and play. And that was really the deciding factor for me to leave the Marines was the hopes to go play football. Very cool. Now, here's just a, a small statement that your gunnery sergeant made many years ago, and it's still something that you reflect on to this day. And you even used the words that was a, a marker of sorts in your life. So as you came out of um, the Marine Corps, did you go, you know, right into ministry? What transpired there? Well, that, that's a story. Um, I had signed to play football at Quincy University. It's a small Catholic school in Illinois. And I got out uh, of the Marines in the spring. So I needed to be able to work until I, I went to school in the fall. Mm -hmm. And my hometown in Iowa was a, a small river city, very uh, industrial, a lot of factories, and not a whole lot of work, really. And so I got a job as a bouncer, of all things. <laughs> and... Uh, when I got there, I met the new bartender, and this was a brand new place, and the bartender proposed to me two weeks after we met. Wow. Um, yeah. And so we eloped to Las Vegas six weeks after we met and uh, been married for over 25 years now. Awesome. But when we got married, um, you know, I was already beginning to think, all right, how am I going to juggle school and being a family man and also playing football? And then we found out my wife was pregnant. And at that point, I realized that uh, I probably wasn't going to be able to do all those things if I was going to support my family. And so I found a really great job just north of St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, started work there and uh, did really well there. And that's where I got hurt. So I had been there for about six months and had just gotten a promotion that was going to significantly increase the money I was making. And it was it was work um, similar, obviously not working on jets, but similar to what I'd been doing in the Marines. And so, you know, with a, a, a child on the way, still fairly newly married, um, you know, we were really excited. And the day before I was supposed to start training on this new job, I separated my shoulder um, while at work. Mm. And. You know, a separated shoulder, while incredibly painful, you know, typically isn't a life-altering event. Um, I had separated it so badly, though, that it kept coming back out of joint. And so I would sit there and try to manipulate it back in and try to go back to work because I was scared to death, you know, of losing my job or, or being off of work. And I would get it back in joint and it'd come right back out. And I did that about four or five times and decided, all right, I, I probably need to go to the emergency room. And so I went to the emergency room. Um, they quickly diagnosed it as a separated shoulder, which, you know, was pretty obvious. Um, 
but the problem was when I did it, I tore into a band of nerves called the brachial plexus. Um, and I've been told that's the largest band of nerves in the human body. And there was some concern as we went along with all these doctors. And I mean, they bounced me from doctor to doctor to doctor trying to figure out really what was going on. Cause I was, I was having some sensations that they were atypical. And so they, they were wrestling with, do we let the shoulder try to heal on its own because of the nerve damage? Do we go ahead and go in and try to repair the shoulder? There, there was a lot of questions. And so two weeks after my son was born, and that would have been that July, uh, I had the shoulder reconstructed. And anytime you have work done on your shoulder, it's, it's incredibly painful. You realize your shoulder is attached to every last part of your body. Um, and things went really well. I went into physical therapy and, you know, felt like we finally had this problem licked. And I was doing the cool down exercises that they give you at the end of each of the sessions. And typically you know, the therapist, once they teach you these things, they'll, they'll leave the room and then come back and check on you. And if you're done, you go home. And so I was, I was doing my exercises like I was supposed to. And instantly and i i still remember this so clearly I, I was fine one second and the next it literally felt like i was on fire from my fingertips to my shoulder um and you know we all experience burning pains but this literally felt like fire um and so i let out a yelp and it must have been a little louder than i'm remembering it <laughs> because the uh, therapist come running back in and at that point i hadn't even looked at my arm i was just kind of panicking about where this fire had come from and he looked down at my arm and his eyes got big and I looked down and from my fingertips to my shoulder my arm had turned almost black it was a really mottled purplish black color mm. and he said get to the emergency room and so that started off a uh, another long tour of doctors I think I saw every doctor from St. Louis Missouri to the Mayo Clinic up in Minnesota wow and so did they finally determine what was what was going on with your with your shoulder, your arm? It took a long time. Um, at the time, now this this disease that it was diagnosed as has become a little uh, a little more well known, better studied. But at the time, not a lot of people knew about it, and so there was again, you know, bouncing from doctor to doctor, trying to determine, you know, what was going on. And anytime you injure nerves, um, you know, our nervous system. I don't think it's probably all that well understood and, you know, it does weird things when it gets hurt. And so we went from doctor to doctor to doctor and eventually I ended up in another emergency room because my health over the next several months um, just kept declining and it wasn't the arm anymore. My heart rate was at 120 beats a minute at rest. Mm. I, I was having trouble breathing. I was having trouble with my digestion. And so I ended up in another emergency room and the doctor there took one look at me and said, I, I'm afraid you have RSD. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, it's reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And she goes, you need to start praying. That's not what it is. Mm. And so that scared me to death. Yeah. Um, and so eventually I was diagnosed with it. Um, and it, it's a, a chronic pain syndrome. Um, and they started me on, you know, I think a conservative treatment, which, you know, was the right call, obviously. But the, the philosophy then, and I haven't kept up with it, so I'm not sure what, what the philosophy is now. But back then, they would say that if they caught it within the first six months, you know, that there was relatively good outcomes. 
with me, it was about a year when they first started treating it. And so the doctors I was seeing said, you know, this, this is the worst case we've seen. So they started the meds. My health continued to decline. The meds uh, weren't helping. And I had, with the birth of my son, and it's funny how that happens, um, my relationship with God started coming back to the forefront in my life. And obviously being hurt's another thing that'll bring you back to God. But as I kept getting sicker and sicker, and, you know, I, I have, you know, my son at the time is about a year old. Um, I'm, I should be in the prime of my life and, and enjoying life. And I'm just getting worse and I'm miserable all the time. I can't sleep. I can't can't do anything that, that I love to do. And so I really began to fight and wrestle with God. Um, I couldn't understand why it was happening um, because I had everything to live for. And so eventually um, they decided to put me on Oxycontin. Um, you know, we started with small doses. Eventually I was on uh, 240 milligrams a day, which is just a massive, massive dose. And when that didn't work, um, you know, it would put you almost in a stupor. Right. But the pain, the pain was still there. Um, they decided to put in a spinal cord stimulator. And what that involved was doing a laminectomy, which is a shaving way of the bone in your neck on four discs to expose my spinal cord. And they sewed electrodes to my spinal cord, ran wires down my neck and over my shoulder, and it attached to a battery in my chest. And the idea was if they would shoot enough electricity into my spine, it would override the pain signals. And so that, you know, this was a major, major surgery. Right. Um, so for about the six month, first six months of that, it worked great. And, you know, obviously life was going to be very different with all of that hardware in there, but I was getting some relief at about the six month point. And if I remember right, it was almost six months to the day I woke up in worse pain than I'd ever been in, except now it was on both sides of my body. And they would later find out that oftentimes when they would implant a stimulator for RSD, it would cause that exact phenomenon where the disease would spread to the other side as well. Because it typically seems to to set up on one side of the body or the other. Okay. And so I woke up after six months with this disease on both arms. And at that point, I really decided, now we're talking, you know, this ordeal at this point, I think had been going on for three, four years. Um, at that point, I was done with God. Um, from the time we brought my son home from the hospital when he was born, my wife read the Bible to him every night at bedtime. And I determined that day that I would never listen to her read him the Bible again. Um, I was not going to pray anymore. I mean, I, I was as done as done could be. Mm. The following day, though, <laughs> and, and, you know, that was the first time in years where I didn't pray when I went to bed. And I woke up the next day crying in my sleep and praying. And I can just remember being so angry that I felt like God wasn't letting me have what I wanted. I wanted to be done with him, but it was like he wasn't done with me. He was getting me in my sleep. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> and so that, that wrestling match continued. Well, when my son was about three, um, we noticed that when he would get a new toy or be looking at a book, he would cock his head off to the side like he was trying to look out the corner of his eye. And we thought, you know, he was around my dad a lot. My dad's getting older and doesn't have great eyesight. And, you know, sometimes he'd move his head around to see things. And we thought he was kind of mimicking him, but right. it, it, it didn't stop. And 
So we at three, we took my son to an ophthalmologist and the diagnosis they gave him on the spot was kind of similar to what I had been going through. They said, we don't know what's wrong with him, but this isn't good. He had had some things in his eyes that they couldn't determine what it was. And at that point, I was really, really done with God. Um, you know, you took my health and now my son. Um, you know, there was a question about whether or not he would go blind. And so that started his own uh, tour of doctors um, all over the place trying to determine what was wrong with him. Eventually, they found that he just had and the doctors at the University of Iowa, which is one of the top children's ophthalmology clinics in the world, they were kind of baffled by what the other doctors had been seeing because all they could find was a small cataract in the center of one of his eyes. Um, and so that, too, was kind of a turning point for me because it, it it felt that despite my anger with God, and there was times where I would kind of lash out outwardly at God. I, I can remember one time just walking out and screaming at the sky um, an obscenity I won't re repeat here. But despite that, I felt like something good had happened to my son because I knew everybody else was praying for him. And so my relationship with God again took another turn. Um, but it was much calmer, I think, at that point in the sense that I wasn't constantly make me better, help me with this. You know, it wasn't so much focused on what I was going through as it was my relationship with God. Mm. And so things between God and I, uh, you know, and it's funny, I always told people that, that God and I were fighting this whole time. In hindsight, I was the one fighting. God was holding me like the petulant child, you know, lashing out at him. Right. Uh, so my health continued to decline. And during the course of that, um, they decided to change the, the hardware uh, in my neck and in my chest. And they'd had upgraded hardware that they were going to switch it out with so that I could have electricity on both sides since I now had the disease on both sides. And that process was absolutely excruciating. Uh, I lay in the hospital in the fetal position for two days. They kept trying to give me the knockout drugs, uh, or what they called the knockout concoction. And it, it wasn't touching it. Mm. But eventually, you know, they did let me out of the hospital. Um, and things just really kept getting worse health-wise. And so eventually, my wife, uh, she had grown up with horses. And, you know, horses were incredibly important to her. And we were living in Iowa at the time. And, and we have horses there, but not like they do down here um, in Kentucky. So I had determined that I probably wasn't going to be around a whole lot longer, um, especially with the state of my heart. And I'd begun passing blood and, and just all sorts of unpleasantness. Um, oh and so I determined that if I could ever move her to Kentucky before I died, that's what I was going to do. Um, and so oddly enough, the opportunity did present itself. She found a job in Lexington, Kentucky, and we moved down here. And there was a real sense of peace for me in that because I felt like, you know, she had dealt with so much with my illness. Right. You know, that that's not what she had signed up for. Right, right. And, you know, and it, it hit pretty quick after we got married. Yeah. Um, so I felt like, okay, finally I was able to give something back um, before I got out. And while we were in Lexington, I started having this real bad pain in my neck. And so I found a, a neurosurgeon down here to go see, and one of the wires had broken. And there was a lot of concern with 
as bad as my heart was behaving, whether or not to do surgery. Um, and the, the flip side of that was they didn't want the wire going into my spine and paralyzing me. And so there was a little bit of back and forth about what to do. And they finally determined to do the surgery. And I, I went to the surgeon the day before and, you know, going through the, the pre-surgery interview and all that. And I just flat told her that if things went bad, I don't want to come back from this. I'm, I'm tired of hurting. Um, you know, I'm tired of my wife and son being a burden to them. Just let me go. As things had started to get really bad between God and I all those years before, we were watching my son swim at my parents' house. And, you know, at that point, I'm on so many medications. Um, you know, I, I think I was coherent. And I think my wife would probably agree with that to the most part. But we were sitting there watching him swim. And there's not a lot that I remember real, real clear. Everything's kind of foggy from back then. But I, I remember this really clear. And, you know, my wife remembers it the same way. I turned to look at her and I, I don't know where the words came from. They just kind of fell out of my mouth. And I said, I think God wants me in the ministry. Mm. Well, there was nothing more absurd that I could have said at that moment because she knew the fight I was having with God. Right. She knew how bad my health was. I knew how bad my health. I couldn't help myself, much less others. And yet here's these words falling out of my mouth. And so fast forward back to when I'm going in for this surgery, my parents had come down from Iowa. My wife shared with me later that she was convinced I wasn't going to survive this surgery. And, and as they're wheeling me towards surgery, um, I'm having my conversation with God and apologizing, you know, that it took me so long to come back around mm. and that I was ready to come home. And that, that was the words I used. I'm ready to come home. Mm. Um, so when they got me in on the table, I do this stupid thing. I think everybody probably does it where when they begin to inject the anesthesia, you see how long you can fight it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it never goes well. Right. right. Um, <laughs> you're going to go to sleep. So you, you get that little cold tingle when it first hits. And the last thing I thought of was that conversation with my wife. You know, I think it was about seven years before that. Wow. And so when I woke up, um, you know, you're seeing bright lights cause you're in the, the recovery room and I wasn't sure that I had survived. Um, I, I didn't feel any pain and the, the way that I knew that it, I had made it was I get really sick with anesthesia and I rolled over and threw up. So I figured I must, I'm still alive. Be, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> um, they had me hooked up to the, the morphine pump, you know, where you can hit the button if you need it. Right. And by the time I got back to my room, now I remember the last time that I'd had any kind of surgery done on this, I was in the fetal position for two days and I never hit that button. Um, within an hour of that surgery, I was walking up and down the hallways and, and I knew something had changed, which was kind of scary because for the previous 10 years, you know, I think everybody that goes through a bad situation, whether you have faith or not, you're always kind of the mindset, it's going to get better. Mm -hmm. Things are going to get better. And, and when they don't, and that loss of hope, hope's a very, very dangerous thing sometimes, that loss of hope is significant. And so as I'm sitting there walking up and down the hallways, just waiting for this pain to come roaring back, I, I was scared to death because I felt like I was getting a glimpse of, of something better, of something that I thought was lost, but I was also sure it was going to get taken away from me. Mm. So 
I continued to be kind of symptomatic. Um, I'd have good days, bad days um, over the next year, but I felt like things were getting better and I felt like I really needed to get off the medication. Um, and again, I, w- I was on a lot. And so I talked to my doctor about it and they of course, you know, weren't crazy about the idea of me going off of it and, you know, suggested if I was really committed to it, that I go to a methadone clinic. And in my thinking, I was trading one problem for another. Um, and so against doctor's orders, I decided to go off everything cold Turkey. Oh my. Uh, yeah. So that was, uh, quite the ordeal, but I went cold turkey off everything, got really, really sick from it, um, but eventually started getting stronger. And I've always had this thing in life. Um, I'm the type of person, I think we all know people like this, that if you sit down in a public place, inevitably somebody is going to come and sit down next to you and tell you their whole life story. But this started to seem to happen more and more. And they begin when this would happen. I mean, I can remember a time going to get my brakes changed on my vehicle and the owner of the store. uh, And I was actually reading my Bible while I was waiting. And he started asking me questions about it. And then he started telling me his life story and all these horrible, horrible things. And I'm just sitting there kind of listening. And he stops just mid sentence. He goes, are you in the ministry? And I looked at him and said, no. Well, that question kept coming up in just random conversations. And so eventually I went on the Emmaus walk, um, which is three day retreat. Right. And one of the first rules that they tell you at Emmaus is don't ask anybody what they do for a living. And so during there's a, a part in Emmaus where you go to the chapel and it's called candlelight. And I was sitting in there and you're, you're given time alone with God in there. And I'm just having an absolute fit. I can't sit still. I'm up and I'm down. And, uh, eventually I decided to go up to the altar where the pastors are. And the first thing that the pastor asked me when I got up there, he goes, are you in the ministry? (laughs) And, and And I knew at that point that, that I needed to be, that it was time to quit running. So you come to this point and are you at a point now where you're like, Okay, God, sure. It's taken years and years and years. It's been a roller coaster of emotions and, you know, all the physical things we've been through. But did did you finally come to that point where it was just like, okay, I understand, God, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm there, I'm with you. Yeah, and that that happened in that moment there in Estes Chapel at Asbury on Emmaus. Um when that pastor asked me, "Are you in the ministry?" it, it all became clear. Um all the conversations prior to that where somebody had asked me that question, you know, going back to the time I was five years old and the pastor in our neighborhood had told me that someday you're going to be a pastor. It all came rushing back. And so I committed at that point to going back to get my undergrad and then going to seminary. And that, that's another crazy story in itself because my wife went on Emmaus two weeks later. because that, that tends to be how it works is you go first and then your spouse goes next. And you know, I come home from that all excited. And it was funny, the response from my wife and my pastor and everybody else is what took so long. <laughs> but when, when she went on her walk, there happened to be somebody there from Asbury and she was telling her my story. And she said, well, you know, there's a program at Asbury and she goes, it's very rare that we let anybody in, but you can get in without your undergrad. And she goes, with your husband's story, it's worth looking into. And so she come home excited about that. And 
you know, there, there's still enough of the Marine in me that's like, no, we're, we're going to do this by the book and we're going to do it right. <laughs> and, I, and I'm going, you know, I'm going to go to college and then I'll go to seminary. Well, I talked to my pastor who was uh, the chair of the Board of Ordained Ministry for the Kentucky Annual Conference. And I said, you know, what do you think? And she goes, well, Corey, they're, they're never going to let you in. But she goes, it's not going to hurt to check. And so I, I contacted Asbury and they said, yeah, it's it's unusual. And, she, and they give me the, the rundown of all the things I had to do and then they would consider it. And so one of the first things I had to do was take the Miller analogies test. And so I went and got that uh, preparatory exam book for that thing. And I, and I opened it up and read about two pages. I'm like, there, there's no way this is happening. Um, <laughs> one of the words that stuck out to me, though, in, in studying was the word lugubrious. And I would go around and everybody knew I was preparing for this test. And they would ask me, hey, Corey, how are you feeling about this? And I said, well, I'm feeling pretty lugubrious about it. Um, <laughs> and so after I think I studied for about a month and I went to Eastern Kentucky University to take the test. And lo and behold, when the test started, the first word that came up was lugubrious. Um, and you weren't feeling so lugubrious at that point then, right? You're like, no, Whoa. I thought maybe some, something's going on. That's right. Um, <laughs> So I took the test, didn't feel real good about it, and, and submitted and sat there waiting for the score. And it came back, and, and I had scored really, really well. And so, you know, sent the results over to Asbury. And eventually, uh, they did let me in without my undergrad. So I have my master's without my undergrad. Impressive, um, brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. But the cool thing about that is it kind of fast-forward you. You know, it gave you the opportunity to get in into ministry into what you're right. doing now much more quickly. So um, when you when you came out of seminary, you were assigned a church or invited to to take leadership over at a church? Actually, while I was at Asbury, okay. I had a two-point charge for three years, which means I was pastoring two churches okay. um, out in the middle of Breckenridge County, which is in the middle of nowhere and two hours from everywhere, it seems. And one of the churches was about 15 people and the other one was about 30. And in the first six months that we were there, one had quadrupled and the other one had about doubled. Wow. Um, and so that got the attention of our leadership. And they started talking to me about church planning, which I wanted nothing to do with. <laughs> um, I spoke at Asbury yesterday on the panel and uh, told them, you know, when I was in seminary, if you'd asked me what I wanted to do, the only thing I knew for certain is I wanted to serve God. But if you wanted to know what I didn't want to do, you know, come hang out with me for a week and that'll give you the whole checklist. Right. Um, you know, and I can't imagine life without it now. Right. Um, right. So I, I had those two churches in Breck. And then when I graduated from seminary, they sent me up here to Louisville in a neighborhood that's two blocks from Churchill Downs. And that's awesome. Now, Corey, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you and to hear your story here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Just real quickly, if people want to connect with you or learn more about um, your church, Grace Kids, uh, where, where can they connect with you or, or what's your website for your church? Our website is gracekidschurch.com, and from there you can find all of our contact information. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, uh, Grace Kids Louisville. We're, we're pretty easy to find. Awesome, brother. Well, thank you again so much, Quay, for taking the time to be with us and uh, really praying for uh, your church and all of those kids in that neighborhood and excited to hear how God is continuing to do great things, and it's inspiring and encouraging to all of us. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. Well, thank you. It was an honor to be with you. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews 
as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.